Ideally, we want to be the church that God wants us to be. If you and I take our Bibles and we read through the New Testament, we will learn that God has a presentation about the kind of church he wants us to be. We can read about congregations like the church in Corinth that struggle with a number of different problems. We can read about Paul as he wrote to each of these churches and about what message he wanted to convey to each of them. It's my opinion the book of Philippians is a needed study for us. The reason why it is needed is because it reflects to us a church that is striving to be what God wants them to be. They're taught of God to love one another. They're the kind of people who are striving to be what God would want them to be. And Paul praises them for that. When you get to chapter 2 in the first half of this chapter, we're going to talk about a church that's in one accord. Before we do, I want to start with a few ideas that maybe can help us appreciate why Paul writes what he does. Do you know what makes parents happy? I have taught with parents, and particularly those who have adult children, when their children get along. When their children can uh, enjoy one another's company, and they enjoy the peace and the harmony. Too many families are filled with strife. I could point you to the family of Jacob and his sons and the kind of struggle that they went through. When you read Genesis 37 and verse 4, it says that, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. It's talking about Joseph's brothers. The kind of malice and animosity that existed certainly grieved Jacob. He, he was disappointed in his children. But when you think about that, do you know what makes God happy with his children? Well, as I read through scriptures, I realize that Jesus, in praying his prayer to the Father in John 17, said, I do not pray for these alone, but also those who will believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus' prayer reflected the kind of love and compassion that Christians ought to have for one another. And he states it very plainly in John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The kind of unity of thought, the kind of unity of passion with one another, that makes God happy. In Psalm 133, verse 1, it also makes us happy. David would say, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. We ought to be praying that we be unified. You and I ought to be working that we are unified. We ought to strive to make sure that we as a congregation work together, not against one another, but with one another to accomplish what God wants. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We'll talk about an exhortation, 
a message, if you will, an encouragement. Then verses 3 and 4, an explanation of how this is accomplished. And then finally, an example in verses 5 through 8 of Jesus Christ. So let's take a few minutes. Let's go through this passage. Look with me carefully again at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Paul begins with four different conditions that need to exist. And it's, it's valuable just to pull these out and, and just sort of look at them like you would uh, maybe take a, a passage of Scripture and you look at that and you take another and you examine it. He said if there is any consolation in Christ, the word consolation is the same word that's elsewhere translated encouragement. It's the same idea that the Bible talks about the comforter, the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14. It's the same idea found in 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. He says, my little brethren, these things I write unto you that you may not sin. But if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word advocate is there. But the word paraclesis means to call somebody by your side. You're down, you're out, you need encouragement. That's the word there. And the Bible uses this to describe a particular individual, Barnabas. In Acts 4, verse 36, And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated, son of encouragement. Whenever I think about somebody like Barnabas, I've got two or three people here that I really think the world of. I talk to them often. They are encouragers. He said, if there is any consolation or encouragement in Christ. But then he says, if there's any comfort of love. Now, uh, the word there is paramithion. You'll notice the word para. That's where we get like parallel, beside. And this literally means to speak beside, to, to offer a persuasive message an encouraging word as well. And the word is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. So you have the consolation in Christ and then you have the comfort of love because you and I love one another. We speak good words to one another. And the third thing he says, the fellowship of the Spirit. The word fellowship carries with the idea that we work together. But it's the fellowship in the Spirit or of the Spirit. You see, the Spirit is what provides for each of us our teaching, our connection. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Or 1 John 1, 3, that which we have seen we declare to you and that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So you have got, you've got your consolation in Christ, you've got your comfort of love, you've got your fellowship in the Spirit, and then you've got affection and mercy. Those are the kind of attitudes 
that you have. What happens if you have a congregation where everybody is encouraging one another? What if you have everybody who is speaking a word of comfort to those maybe who are in times of disappointment, in times of discouragement? What if you have everybody working together because of what the Spirit has said and then finally you have this affection and mercy toward one another? If those conditions exist, then the congregation will grow. Colossians 3.12, Therefore is the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long sufferings. But now if you have the four conditions, there's going to be four results that come from that. Paul will go on to say that you are going to be like-minded. To be like-minded means we think alike. We have the same attitude. We have the same ideals, the same goals. Philippians 3 verse 16, Nevertheless, to the degree we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Each one of us picks up our Bibles, we read it, we study it, and we say, okay, that's what it teaches, that's what you're going to do, that's what I'm going to do. I implore Euodians, I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Then he says, you will have the same love. What he's talking about is equal love. I love you and you love me. It's a, it's a reciprocal. You know, I've seen husbands and wives where the husband loved the wife, but the wife didn't love the husband. Or I've seen vice versa where the wife loves the husband, but the husband didn't really love the wife. It's a sad situation because one's willing to give and do for the other, but the other one's not in return. In 1 Peter 3, 8, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. 1 Peter 3, 8, chapter 4, 8, and above all things, have fervent love for love of one another, for love will covers a multitude of sins. We have the right attitude, and then from that will come equal love. Then he says, being of one accord. That's the spirit of man. That's the idea that uh, maybe let me use a, a sports figure here. Some of you pull for the same team. You have the same sort of aspirations. You have the same sort of goals. You want your team to win. If we are one accord, we are the kind of people that are all together united in spirit, that we want the Lord's church to win. And we pull for one another in doing so. And finally, he says, having one mind. The word for mind here means to form or hold an opinion. It's not only the fact that we agree on what the Bible says, but that we start thinking alike and we start wishing the things. Now, following that is going to be an explanation. You know, this doesn't just happen by accident. Churches that are unified don't just uh, automatically happen because we all have little problems going on in our lives and we all have our own opinions. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also 
for the interest of others. Now, Paul is going to explain how to accomplish what he has just encouraged them to do. And this is where we start applying this to ourselves. Okay, here I am. I'm a member of this congregation. And I understand what God wants to exist here. What am I going to do to try to change that to make it better? Well, he's going to give negative things and positive things. The first of the negatives is nothing should be done by selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. Selfishness. i got to have my way. It's always got to be what I want it to be. In fact, not only does it have to be the way I want it to be, you have got to make your desires what I want as well. This ends up bringing about strife. James 3, verses 14 through 16, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Now listen carefully. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing is there. If you and I find ourselves constantly pushing this selfishness, this personal ambition, we're going to pretty soon find ourselves in strife. We'll end up saying and doing things we ought not. Then he talks about conceit. And uh, that was a word when I was a high school student was very popular in Vernon, Alabama. There'd be a young girl who'd walk across in front of you and she may be very attractive, and he said, but she's conceited. You don't know what that means? That's a person who has an exaggerated self-evaluation. Literally, they think more of themselves than they ought to think. This is a person who believes that whatever they think is always right, even in matters of opinion. But in contrast to that, He said, here's some things you can do. He said, in lowliness of mind. This word elsewhere is translated most often as humble. Remember Romans 12, 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Learn to think of of yourself as not being up here, but down here. How many times did Jesus in his parables talk about if you're invited to a a feast, don't go set up in the high seat or the most important place. He said go and and take the lowest seat because it's a whole lot better for someone to come to you and say, move on higher than for a person to come and say, that seat's reserved for somebody higher than you. You see, you should have a lowliness of mind. But then he adds to not only the way you view yourself, but the way you view other people. He says, esteem others as better than yourself. Look and think about them and and realize that they deserve the kind of respect and honor that they ought to. In Philippians 2 verse 6, Jesus looked and it says, Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. What did Jesus do? He looked at his status, but then he looked at God the Father's. Or look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. 
He said, for what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I also count all things for loss, for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. He said, here's where Christ is, here's where I am. He said, everything that I have, I'm willing to just do away with it. Then... He says, not looking each of you to his own things, but also to the things of others. Don't just look out and say, what would make me happy? What do I really need? But look at that person on the pew next to you, in front of you, behind you, across the way from you and say, what do they need? What should be a part of their uh, spiritual life? Think about others. Now here's the the great part. Verses 5 through 8. We've got a perfect example of how to do that. Jesus is always the perfect example, but let's read what Paul writes. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, I've already said Jesus is our perfect example. If I want to know how I ought to talk, listen to what Jesus said. If I want to know how I ought to treat my enemies, look in the way that Jesus treated his enemies. If I want to know how to teach people and exhibit compassion toward those who are drowning in sin, I can go to the scriptures and see Jesus and how he dealt with that. First thing Paul says, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. If I want to live like Jesus lived, I've got to think and have the mind that Jesus had. If the church is going to be what God wants us to be, we're going to say not what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus think? What was his attitude? What was his mind? Don't insist on taking, but giving. How many times could you go through the scriptures and look at Jesus who could have demanded that people serve him, but he didn't? Do you remember when Jesus came and met with the disciples, John 12 and 13, met with them in that upper room in Jerusalem right before he was going to be uh, betrayed that night and then crucified the next day? When they all came in, they were arguing about which one of them was going to be the greatest. Jesus took a towel, wrapped it around his waist, got down and took a basin and washed the disciples' feet. What was he trying to do? To teach them to be servants, not to be served. To have the right attitude. You look at some of the key words. He didn't consider it to be robbery, to be equal with God. The word, if you study the original language, means to something to be grasped by force. and That's why the word robbery is used. You know, someone comes and 
they stick a knife or a gun in your back and say, I want your money. I want your jewelry. And in doing so, they take it from you by force. There are people trying to do the kingdom like that. Matthew 11, verse 12. In the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. John 6.15 talked about those people who were going to come and take him by force and make him king. Jesus didn't say, okay, I am going to demand to have what is rightfully mine. I can be equal with God. I am equal with God. He didn't do that. He was equal with God. John 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Hebrews 1, 3, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus possessed every characteristic of God the Father. They were one in not only their uh, goals and aspirations, but they were one in their nature as well. He bore all of the characteristics of the Godhead. In fact, Colossians 2.9 would say, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But Jesus didn't say, I've got to take what is mine. It's my role. It's my place. And I'm going to demand it. No. It said he made himself of no reputation. The American Standard says he emptied himself. The idea is divesting. Here's a person maybe who is just super wealthy, a billionaire, and he decides, you know what I could do with this money? There's so many people over here who are hungry in this world. I want to see they have food to eat. And so he takes a large portion and gives that to their needs. Maybe he sees other people over here who have terrible illnesses, and he says, I'm going to invest my money so that we can learn how to cure cancer, how we can cure heart disease, how we can cure all these other ailments. And so he takes all that money and he divests himself of it for the benefit of others. Jesus made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself of all of his glory, the place where he was, everything that he enjoyed. He's not a taker. He's a giver. Well, how did Jesus empty himself? You know, there's a, in the original language a thing that's called these uh, participles that explain, uh, that provide for us. You, you have a leading verb, and then after that's all the explanation. Well, that's one of those cases you have here. And he says he was taking the form of a bondservant, a slave. Not only did he divest himself of all the glory of heaven and all the wonders that go with it, but then he did that by being a slave. He served at someone else's direction. He took the Father's directions. He was coming in the likeness of men. In order to do that, he had to take on himself flesh. You want to study about that? Read Hebrews chapter 2 about how he took on flesh. Or read John chapter 1. 
that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among men, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And being found in the appearance of a man, in other words, in this physical shape, it says He became obedient to the point of death. Not only did He take the the form of a slave, not only did He put Himself into the constraints of the human form, but he paid the ultimate price, his life in so doing. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What did Jesus do? He said, I'm not going to think of myself up here. I'm going to take myself and I'm going to put myself down here for the good, the benefit of man. That's what it takes to make a congregation of people who will work together and serve God. God seeks that His children work together. He doesn't want us to just get along, but He wants us to see things alike. He wants us to be unified in our purpose and our preaching and the way we do things. In order for us to do that, though, we've got to have His attitude, His mind, And his will. Are you standing with the faithful of God? Are you willing to say, not me, but what Jesus did in that garden of Gethsemane. Father, not my will, but your will be done. That's what you and I ought to say. Now tonight, if you're not one of those people, if you're not a Christian then you need to come and because God has offered salvation to you to freely take advantage of that. Come repenting of your sins, confessing your faith and being baptized. If you're a Christian and you need to come back home, we're going to sing the song, There's a Fountain Free. Would you come as together we stand and sing?